We're in uh, Judges chapter 14 tonight. Judges chapter 14 in the Old Testament. We'll be looking at verses 10 through 20. 10 through 20. Let's uh, just bow in a word of prayer and ask the Lord to open our hearts and our minds to His Word. Father, we thank You for our time of fellowship. Thank You that we can gather as the body of Christ in this place. And thank You for Your provision in this building that we can meet in. And, and Lord, we don't take anything for granted nowadays. And so, Father, we just thank You for our health. We thank You for just allowing us to share our fellowship in Christ. And, and Lord, we thank You for opportunities to serve You each day. And Lord, we, we pray that tonight, that as we uh, look into your word in Judges chapter uh, 10 through 20, and look at Samson's wedding and, and what was involved with that, Lord, we just pray that you would um, allow us to uh, practically apply these to our own lives, these truths that we'll be learning tonight. And Father, we pray that we would um, leave here changed uh, by your word, by your Holy Spirit. We thank you, and we ask that you bless our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, last week we looked at um, signs that uh, point to danger, and uh, we began our study there of, of Samson, and we uh, noticed a couple things in verses 1 through 9. First of all, we noticed Samson's desires, and uh, he desired a, a woman, which is not a bad thing for a man to desire. Um, secondly, he desired his own way, <laughs> which wasn't, didn't work out very well for him. We'll find out. And then, uh, secondly, we saw Samson's disrespect to, toward his parents, toward the Lord. And then Samson's disobedience and his deception. And tonight, we'll be looking at um, the tale of a gambler. <laughs> Samson was, no doubt, a gambling man. And uh, we, uh, we'll see that as we go through the text. But I just want to read the text for us tonight, and beginning in verse 10, so you can just follow along in your Bibles, and we'll read down through verse, uh, the end there, verse 20. <clears throat> it says, His father went down to the woman, and, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions with him. And Samson said to them, Let me now... Uh, put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 <laughs> linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. Verse 15, on the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people, and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother. And shall I tell you? Verse 17, she, she wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day he told her, because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said, to him on the seventh day, before the sun went down. What is sweeter than honey? 
And what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would have not found out my riddle. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ascalon and struck down thirty men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger he went back to his father's house. And Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. Incredible part of the story. Um, We don't uh, realize sometimes what where our sin can lead us and our callousness to sin in our in our last glimpse if you weren't here last week just a reminder in our last glimpse of of samson's life uh, last week we saw a man who had little respect for the will of god in his life Um, he goes down to this place timnath and um, it was a philistine territory it was the tribe of dan but it was occupied by the philistines and he sees a woman there, and he wants to marry her. That's in verse 1. And he demands his parents, get her for me. <laughs> That's literally his words. Um, verse 2. And they try to, to their best to discourage Samson from this because uh, she's a Gentile woman. And, um, you know, that's forbidden for Samson to marry a Gentile woman. But Samson, basically, verse 3 says, I, I don't want anybody else but her. And so his parents give in to Samson's demands, as we saw last week. They make arrangements for the wedding to take place. And on their first trip down to Timnath, um, Samson, apparently away from his parents, because they didn't know what he was doing, he uh, is in a vineyard, and he is attacked by a lion, and he kills the lion, verse 6. And Samson really revealed his heart here he really revealed the low esteem that he had for the things of god first of all he was in a vineyard remember he took a nazaretic vow they weren't supposed to be anywhere near a vineyard anything to do with grapes or wine or anything they were supposed to be far removed from that and so he was disobedient in that aspect of it um but then on the second trip Uh, Samson goes to look at the carcass of the lion, verse 8, and he finds that because of the arid nature of the the, uh, land over there, that the the bees had invaded this carcass because obviously it had some moisture still in it, and so the, the bees were there for the moisture, but they had a hive there, and there was honey there, and he finds this beehive in the carcass of the lion, and he eats some of the honey, and not only that, but he gives some to his parents in verse 9. And you say, well, what's the big deal? Well, he's not supposed to be anywhere near a dead body of anybody, a person or an animal that would, um, you know, violate his vow as a Nazarite. And so not only did Samson show little or no regard for his Nazaritic vow, he actually violated that vow. And then he told no one about that he had violated. He didn't, he didn't say that to anybody. And so he actually invited his parents to be defiled by this honey that was in a carcass of a dead body, which they were not supposed to have anything to do with either. It was kind of a cultural thing for, for Jews. They're not to be around um, carcasses of animals or, or dead people. Or they have to, if they do, they have to go to the priest and get cleansed and go through this whole ritual. And he didn't want to do that, so he just ignored the whole thing, ate the honey, gave it to his parents. And uh, he 
we saw where he's headed for trouble because he's disregarding everything that God set before him, all the, the principles that God uh, laid out before him to live this life of a Nazarene. And so he's really a warning to all of us or to anyone who like to uh, skate near the edge. You know, there's some people who they see danger, they see uh, trouble, and, and they're gone. There's other people that it intrigues them, <laughs> you know, and they want to get closer to it. And they think sometimes, well, I'm strong enough. I'm, this isn't going to bother me. I'm, I'm spiritual enough. I can go right up to the edge of sin and not sin. And that's kind of where Samson was. That's what he believed about himself. And um, he's really a, a warning to those who love to see what they can get away with. Uh, but here he had taken this vow... And we saw where our vows to God are sacred. When we promise something to the Lord, he holds us to it. Um, he expects us to fulfill them. It's not just words that roll off the tongue. And uh, he expects us to live for him at all times. First Peter chapter 1, verse 16 says, You shall be holy for what? For I am holy. That's God's expectations of us as his children. Or in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17 Paul writes, therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and then I will welcome you. So God has a certain standard for his people. He had a certain standard for Samson because he was involved with this vow that he had taken. Um, We're to actively pursue that which is righteous, that which is holy. Um, if If you look over in the New Testament just quickly, 1 Peter 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter 3, and then I want us to look at verse 8. First Peter chapter 3, beginning there in verse 8. He says here, Finally, all of you, he's talking to believers, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Most of us would agree with that statement. That's a good thing to have. Verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But he says, on the contrary, bless. So instead of someone does you wrong, instead of just slapping them back or returning evil to whatever they did to you, it says, bless them. For to this you were called. God has a separate standard than the world. God has a separate standard for those who are called to follow him. That you may obtain a blessing, he says at the end of verse 9. And then he says in verse 10, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. So the goal of a Christian is not to see how close they can get to the edge of sin, but they're, they're to turn away from evil. They're to turn away from sinful things and seek peace and pursue it. Verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, but his ears are, and, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Uh, we see this standard for believers, and it was the same standard that God put before uh, Samson back in Judges. And so we're going to look at events tonight revolving around Samson and his family 
um, when they arrived at Timnath for the wedding. So he sends his parents down there. To, he goes down there and uh, he sees a woman. He tells his parents, I want that woman to be my wife. They try to dissuade him, but no, there's nothing doing it. I want her and nobody but her. And so they give in. And this is where things start to un, kind of ravel, as it always is, even in our own lives. When we start down that path of sin, when we start down the path that God tells us not to go down, the first couple steps, we may think, oh, this isn't going to hurt anybody, but eventually it does, namely us and others, as we'll see. And uh, we're going to see that this wedding was not a joyous event that it should have been. Um, we'll see that it was a time of arguments. It was a time of threats. It was a time for crying and killing. I mean, nobody plans a wedding Hopefully with those four things in mind. Yeah, my wedding, I want to have arguments, threats, crying, and killing. I, I don't believe that's the, the list. Okay? Um, and so we want to talk about these events that we mentioned in these verses here. And I want us to take home with us uh, one main principle, and that is there is a price to pay when we wander off the path of righteousness and we decide to gamble with our own testimonies. And that's exactly what Samson did. He wandered off the path of righteousness, which God called him to, and he thought that he could get away with it. He was willing to gamble with these things. And so the first thing we look at here in verses 10 to 11, Samson's wedding. Samson's wedding. And there's tradition involved here, as there is in in most weddings. But in their culture, they had certain traditions. And we notice here in verse 10, it says, His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there. For so the young men used to do. So when they had a, a wedding, they would usually uh, provide a feast. Samson and his family provided a wedding feast. And it indicates, first of all, that they were very wealthy people. Because this wasn't just a one-time, you know, let's go to the outback and we'll have everybody have a steak. You know, this, this went on for seven days, this feast. So you had to have some financial resources to do this. It would have been a very expensive venture. And notice the text also says, for so the, the young men used to do. And this tells us some of the, the, the events surrounding this wedding were really carried out according to the traditions or the customs of the day. Uh, you know, there's certain things when you talk about a wedding that are customary. Okay, usually you have an exchange of rings, exchange of vows, you know, um, and you can go right down the list. There's certain customs in America that we practice. There's certain customs in their culture that they practice. Let me mention just a few of these because they tie in to something even more important. Uh, One of the traditions that when you would have a wedding back during this time would be that the groom and his family were responsible for the expense of the feast. Okay? And, um, you know, that's that's still kind of true if you think about it, right? Um, You know, the... Usually it's the husband's um, family, right, that picks up the the price of the meal. No? Yeah, and the the husband of the the wife, or the the, the father of the wife pays for everything else, okay? There's usually a meal that's involved. And so it's important that in this culture, this is what they did. The groom and his family were responsible for the expense of the feast. And... um, you know, the lavishness of this feast was really a reflection on their wealth. So it kind of played into their own uh, uh, egos, 
you know, the bigger the bash, well, look at us. Look at what we have. That was kind of what was being portrayed. And the wedding was to be arranged by the groom's family in their culture. And part of this involved giving a, what they call a dowry, okay, to the bride's parents. And the reason was because they were losing a daughter. They were, they were losing two hands in the household that helped them with chores and helped them with other things and provided different things for them. So in order to compensate for that, the loss of their daughter and the loss of a worker in the home, the, the, the parents of the uh, groom would provide a dowry to the bride's parents, a payment. You know, it could have been a calf, it could have been whatever, but back then it was something. And a period of time would begin then called what, what we call the, or they call the betrothal period. Um, remember when Mary and Joseph were, they were betrothed to one another. And that usually lasted about a year. Kind of like our a loose interpretation would be our engagement period. You know, you could think of it that way. And during that time, the bridegroom would prepare a place for the couple to live after they were married so that they were all ready to go. And the bride would take this time to prepare her wedding wardrobe and get ready for the, the arrival of the groom. And this is some of the traditions that they had. And one tradition they had was that at an unannounced hour, usually at night, what would happen is the bridegroom would come for his bride. And he would arrange for a feast to be ready. He would take his friends to go after his bride and um, he would come at an unexpected hour, and his arrival would be expected by shouting and even blowing of horns and trumpets and all these kind of things. And, and so that was just their tradition. And the bridegroom would then take his bride home, where the marriage would be consummated, and that's usually how things went. That's how the wedding would go. Well, Samson's wedding, as we're going to see, was just a little bit different. Um, since he was marrying a Gentile, and he was Jewish... Uh, he brought no guests with him. They, they couldn't, couldn't do that. They would defile themselves. It appears that the 30 companions that he mentions here in verse 11 were provided for him by the bride's family. That's what a lot of folks that study this stuff believe. Um, they also did not want to take the bride back for a family wedding feast. Uh, and so instead... Uh, the feast, instead of at the groom's house, the feast would be prepared at her home. And that was the differences that, that the wedding here of Samson to a Gentile uh, would have, would have uh, entailed of. And so, other than that, it was pretty much a traditional, supposed to be, a traditional wedding. Now, one thing, you know, that's interesting is, and the reason I go through that is, there's a lot of typology here. There's a lot of things that we can interpret. Now, we're never going to interpret Samson as a type of Christ, we're not drawing that parallel. But there are a lot of similarities here. And I want to point out some of them. Because, you know, I, I cannot think about a wedding in ancient traditions surrounding weddings without thinking of who? The Lord Jesus Christ and his bride. And what, go, what will go on. And so there's a couple of parallels here. And I just want to take a moment of what the Lord Jesus will do one day. Um, first of all, he made the first trip and he arranged the marriage. Uh, he canceled the debts of his bride. This is Jesus Christ we're talking about. He purchased her unto herself, speaking of the church. He gave her his boundless love along with many other amazing gifts. Uh, gifts like the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the church, 
um, spiritual gifts, um, his continued presence, his providence, etc., etc. He can go on and on, but he blessed the church with gifts. He also returned uh, to his house to prepare a place for his bride. It, we're told that in John 14, 1. Remember when uh, Jesus is encountered and he, he says, hey, you know, if I, I'm coming again, if I wouldn't come again, I wouldn't go and prepare a place for you. John 14, 1. And when the time is right, the Bible says that he will return to claim his bride. And his coming will be preceded, the Bible says, by shouting and the trumpet blast. If you look over at 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we're talking a little bit about this, it kind of dovetails with what we've been talking about on Sunday, speaking of the resurrection. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 to 17 Uh, The word of God says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And it says, The dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. We know this event theologically, as the rapture of the church. The Lord comes back. He doesn't step foot on the earth. It says that we go to meet him. He calls us up, and we meet him in the clouds. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse uh, 51, Paul says the same thing. We'll be getting to this on Sundays in a couple weeks here. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep or die. Sleep is another word for dying in the Bible. But we shall be changed, he says. Verse 52, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And you say, well, what is the twinkling of an eye? Well, it's not blinking your eye. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the time it takes for light to refract off <laughs> the surface of your eye. I mean, it's, 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 it's less than a second. Okay, in the twinkling of an eye. At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and it says, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. What's happening here? He will come in the clouds above the earth, call up his bride, and he will take us to his home in heaven. And so when she, when the church arrives in heaven, we'll be cleansed from our, our journey here on earth. Um, we'll be clothed in fine linen garments, And eventually, we'll have the marriage supper of the Lamb. After all, a couple other events happen. And we'll spend eternity with our Lord and Savior, uh, who loved us and saved us and rescued us. And Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 to 9, kind of mentions this. It says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. That is what is waiting for us who are in Christ. What a glorious time that will be. Thank God that God is preparing that place, is doing all these things for us on our behalf because of our trust and faith 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, not only the the traditions and the typology, but also there's a temptation here we see in verse 10 of Judges, back to Judges 14. If you look in verse 10, it notice, notice it has that word feast. It says, prepared a feast there. It refers to, culturally, a feast involving, you guessed it, wine. And you say, well, what's the problem with that? Well, remember the vow that Samson took. He's not to have any, be around this wine. He's not to have anything to do with wine. He's not even be go near a vineyard. This is God's standard for the vow that he took. But this feast is held in enemy territory and involves at least 30 wicked men. Okay, these were Gentile men. And in other words, Samson had no business being at this feast in the way that things were being done. As a, as a Nazar, Nazarite, he was to be separate separated onto the Lord all the days that he lived. We saw that in Judges chapter 13, verses 3 to 5. And so here, Samson seemed to enjoy gambling with his testimony. He, he didn't step away from evil, he stepped into it. He was very poor witness for the Lord that he claimed to serve. And sadly, it's not a stretch to think of Samson drinking wine with the enemy and just yucking it up with everybody else, even though he was not to be anywhere near that stuff. Um, After all, he did journey through a vineyard to get to this place, so he obviously had no regard for God's standard anyway. He defiled himself already by touching a dead body, and then he defiled himself again by eating the honey that came from the dead body, the carcass of the lion. And so he's about to go through this God-forbidden marriage. And the whole point is this, once you cross the line, once you cross that line and you, you begin to become familiar, you get friendly with sin, uh, it will not be too many days until you find yourself indulging your desires in ways that you never would believe that you would. Um, I'm always reminded of, of certain individuals when you, when you hear somebody who's fallen out of ministry or you know, compromise their marriage in some way or, or whatever. And, and some Christians, you know, they'll read about that and they'll say, well, I would never do that. It's like, whoa, you're, you're, very, you're scaring me, my friend. You know, because that's, that's a sense of pride that we do not need in our lives. Um, except by the grace of God, there go I. Amen? It's only the grace of God that keeps us on that path of righteousness. It's not our own doing. I mean, we play a part in it, no doubt. You know, we turn away from evil, not to it. But that could happen to any one of us at any time. Uh, None of us are above that. We're never on this side of glory spiritually mature enough that sin has no effect on us whatsoever. And the moment you begin to believe that lie from the enemy is the moment you begin to compromise your spiritual life. And you begin to rationalize certain things. And sin always has a way of of spreading in our lives. It never can just isolate itself to one area. It's, it's, it's kind of like the, the leprosy in the Old Testament in Leviticus 13.8. It, it says that basically it will spread. It will grow. It's very dangerous. Um, small things, things that you say, well, that's not that big of a sin. Things like unforgiveness. I've seen people who harbor unforgiveness to the point where it turns into a root of bitterness that consumes them. 
And they're unwilling to forgive for whatever reason. Um, And so we need to be aware of that. Um, Or an evil act that is allowed to exist in your life will become pretty soon a habit. And pretty soon you can't find yourself breaking away from it. And and it it consumes a bigger part of your life. Um, Or maybe maybe it's not something that vile. Maybe it's just... Uh, laziness, <laughs> being slack, um, you know, just, just allowing yourself to become tolerant of, of wasting time and wasting energy in certain areas. And when you do that over time in your spiritual life, it will cause you to become unfaithful, first of all, to the Lord, but then also to the church, to his word, eventually, possibly to your spouse. It spreads like wildfire. Once that line is crossed, it becomes easier and easier to go even deeper into sin. It always amazes me because sometimes when you read about some personality or pastor that's fallen into some compromised situation where they have to step away from ministry, usually it involves uh, finances or sexual sin, something like that, and everybody's shocked. Everybody goes, wow, how could that happen to such a man of God? Well, it didn't happen overnight. This was little pieces of compromise that happen over a period of time. And it's, it sows its seed in that person's life. And they're unwilling to turn away from it. And pretty soon, it consumes them. And pretty soon, guess what? They're found out. And they're compromised. So we see this illustration here in Samson's wedding. But secondly, in verses 12 to 18, we also see Samson's wager. This is where he gets into this uh, kind of uh, gambling situation. Um, we have no idea, the text doesn't tell us, what prompted Samson to give the Philistines this riddle in verse 14. Um, He may have done it to break the tension at the wedding. Maybe it was a little awkward, him being the only Jew there, and they're all Gentiles, and he's knowing he's doing something wrong, but, you know, he doesn't have the support of his friends. And so he has these 30 so-called friends of the bridegroom, but they're, they're most likely there to guard the people from Samson. Remember, Samson had a track record. And, and, and Samson, you, you wouldn't want to mess with this guy. And so I'm sure that the friends and family of the bride thought, well, this guy's an outsider. We've got to make sure that we protect ourselves. He could come in here. Maybe this is a trick. Maybe it's whatever. And so they were there probably to guard the people from Samson if something went awry. Or maybe it was simply a diversion to entertain them during the days of the feast. We don't know about these guys. But apparently, uh, back in that time, riddles, telling jokes, things like that, were um, very common. They were very popular in the ancient world. They would always, you know, uh, someone would always post a riddle. And if you could figure it out, wow, that, that gave you, you know, the, the wisdom that nobody else had. In 1 Kings 10.1 when Queen of Sheba came to Solomon, she, it says this, came to prove him with hard questions. So she came to the wisest of all to prove him with hard questions. What? To test him with riddles and to question him. And regardless here of Samson's reasons why he did this, we don't know. What strikes me out of this is his callous attitude uh, that he has toward his own sin. He doesn't even recognize it at this point. He's unwilling to recognize it. He looks back on an event in his life that showcases his sin, the idea that he would 
first of all, be in a vineyard and then kill a lion and then actually go back and defile himself by going back to the dead body of the lion and then lying about it to his parents, never mentioning it at all. Uh, he highlights this and he makes a joke out of it. He makes a riddle out of it. Uh, and that's what you see unbelievers do this all the time. They mock their sinful behavior. You know, they think it's a joke. Um, he looks back at this event that caused him to break this vow that he made before God, this holy vow of being a Nazarite. And it caused him to defile himself before God, defile his parents. It caused him disrespect. And he uses it for the basis of a riddle. Um, this gives you just a little glimpse into the heart of someone who's gone down this path. They've become very callous toward their own sin. Um, I think a person has real deep spiritual problems, personally, when they cease to be affected by their own sins. Um, I mean, we all sin. None of us are without sin. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, what does it say? We deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Verse 10 says, if we say we have not sinned, 1 John 1.10, we make him, God, a liar, and his word is not in us. So there's no doubt that we sin. But thank God for verse 9 that says, if we confess our sins, or since we confess our sins, that he is faithful, he's just, to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we only have that cleansing through the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and there's a... In, there's this sense that, you know, when we, when we do fall into sin as believers, there's a sense within us, there's a conviction that the, the Spirit puts there that we have, first of all, we've dishonored the Lord, we've damaged our fellowship with Him in some way. And when we sin, what do we do? We look for a place of repentance. And we understand until we repent, until we you know, are willing to confess our sin, and confession is basically saying the same thing about our sin that God says, that it's wrong, that it's dishonoring to him, that we don't want to participate in it. Um, you know, we, we pray for that. We ask God to give us that, that grace. And th that's totally absent here in Samson's life. I mean, he's mocking. He's, he's making a joke about his sin. Um. He was not concerned about his testimony whatsoever. And when that sense of sin is missing, it's an indication that the heart has grown hard and callous toward the Lord himself. Um, it's an indication that the conscience, as Romans 1 talks about, has been seared. Uh, it's an indication that, that sin has been deeply planted within someone's life. And, uh, you know, we need to ask God continually to keep our hearts tender toward the things of God. Keep our hearts tender toward our own sin. Um, I mean, it ought to break our hearts, beloved, when we sin against the Lord. It ought to break our hearts when we find ourselves dishonoring his name. Um, when we dishonor his house, his church, his word, his people, whatever. I mean, it, it should cause us to grieve. We shouldn't be rejoicing in it. 
And I think that here was Samson's problem. He didn't know how to grieve over his own sin. He was too consumed with his own desires, his own wants. He didn't care what anybody else thought. He didn't care what his parents thought. He didn't care what those of his own people thought. I want this, and I'm going to go get it. I don't care what it takes. Um, in 2 Kings 22.19, speaking of, of Josiah, it, it speaks of thy, thy heart was tender. Um, and God's going to judge us one day, you know, um, those who, who are outside of Christ with this. Jeremiah 8.12 says this, Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. I love that. Therefore, they shall fall among the fallen when I punish them. They shall be overthrown, says the Lord. That's Jeremiah 8.12. That's the problem with our society today. We don't blush at sin anymore. We celebrate it. I mean, we see basically Romans 1 lived out, do we not? Look at Romans 1 with me, just quickly. Because this is so practical. It's just, it's amazing. It's just, it's like you're reading the newspaper on our society almost. I want to start in verse 16 just to give us a little hope because Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Look to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for it is, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by what? By faith. And then he gives this wonderful description of God's wrath on, that will come on unrighteousness. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, verse 18, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness, what do they do? They suppress the truth. They suppress the truth. We see that going on. We've seen it since they've taken the Bible out of schools. We've seen it since they've taken prayer out of schools. We see it today in the fact that, boy, if you say something wrong, <laughs> that our society thinks wrong, it doesn't matter whether, God's, whether it's God's truth or not, you're going to be condemned. Um, they want to suppress the truth. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made. All you've got to do is look around. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But look at what it says. They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise. This is what the unbelieving society is doing today. They're claiming to be wise. Well, we, we follow the science. We do this. We have yeah, right. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creepy things. It's, it's hard to believe that we live in a society where you can kill a baby, an unborn baby, but if you kick your dog, you're going to jail. You cut down a tree, boy, that's even worse. They're worshiping the creation. It says in verse 30, 24, Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, 
because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshipped and served, look at what it says, the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And verse 26 says, for this reason, why? Because they did all this. God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their reward or for their error. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, what happens? God gave them up to a debased mind. So first of all, your, your mind is futile. You, you're, you're suppressing the truth. It's futile. Now it's, you're at a debased mind stage. He gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. It's kind of like God just says, okay, you want to go down this path? Go ahead. I'm not going to stop you. It's not going to be pretty. They were filled, it says in verse 29, with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanderers, haters of God. Insolent, haughty, boastful. Look at this, inventors of evil. (laughs) Disobedient to parents. Foolish. Faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. This is how far they've gone down. It says, they not only do them, but what do they do? They give approval to those who practice them. My friends, that's, that's a, a description of what we're living through even now. The approval of evil. The encouragement of evil. Um, it's, it's, it's abhorrent to God. It should be abhorrent to us. But his wager here, back to Judges 14, Samson's Wager was really an a indication of his own greed. Uh, it was very simple, wager. It wasn't anything a big deal. If the Philistines cannot solve his riddle by the end of a week, they owe him 30 sheets and 30 changes of clothing. Now remember, he's holding this big feast, so apparently, you know, some money's coming from somewhere. Um, if they solve the riddle, it says Samson owns owes them the same thing. So 30 sheets, 30 changes of clothing. You say, that's kind of weird. Well, back in the day, sheets were a commodity. They were soft. They were expensive linen. Um, They were wraps that were actually used as a form of underwear that that we would call underwear today. Uh, the, The term garments were the outer clothing that was worn by wealthy people. Most people just had a, a robe, simple robe or something like that. But if you were wealthy, you could have a garment that was, you know, had gold lace around it, whatever. It was, uh, maybe it was in a very expensive belt that highlighted it. Uh, it was very costly garments. And it seems that Samson is trying to make a lot of money here without having to work for it. He's betting. He's, he's, he's wagering. It has all the, the hallmarks of gambling by the way. He's trying to make a lot with a very minimal investment. Um, 
there's people around today that try to do the same thing. Um, whether it's around a Las Vegas poker table or a lottery ticket, whatever, you're, you're making a minimal investment, but you're, you're hoping for that, that big hit, you know, <laughs> you're a millionaire, whatever. Um, and, and by the way, there's no version of the Bible that has a verse in it that says, thou shalt not gamble. The verse is not there. You're not going to find it. Okay? But the Bible does warn us uh, about the love of money. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, it says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Notice it's the love of money. It doesn't say money is the root of all kinds of evil. That's not true. Money is a commodity that we use, we trade, we buy things with. There's nothing wrong with money in and of itself. But when you allow your heart to be captivated by it, and it, it creates a love for it that creates a thirst and a hunger that never stops, and pretty soon you find yourself, you know, working 80-hour weeks just because you got to have more money. <laughs> and your family and your marriage and your kids are all going to pot, but you don't care because you're, you're bringing home six-figure income. Uh, you know, that's, that's what happens with folks today, especially in our society today. They're climbing the ladder. They're checking all the boxes. They want the big house on the hill with the nice two cars in the garage and the pool in the backyard, everything. And to get that, sometimes people fall into this. There's nothing wrong with having those things. But as Chuck Swindoll says, it's when those things have you. That's the danger. Um, that's what we have to be careful of. Uh, the end of that verse says, it is through this craving, the love of money, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. All you have to do is turn on the, some of the TV evangelists. They're constant whining. They need more money. They need more money. As they drive their Lear jet from town to town and live in their multi-million dollar mansions on coast to coast. I mean, I watch those guys sometimes and I think, wait, yeah, you know, you got a lot more money than I do, pal. <laughs> Fund your own campaign. Why am I giving you money? Why would I ever do that? You know, why? Because they have so much, but they want more. They have created a hunger and a love for money that does just that. It's the root of all kinds of evil. And they're willing to compromise in ways that other people wouldn't because of their willingness and their hunger for this kind of wealth. I mean, when you're willing to talk a little old lady out of the, the money maybe that she has from her retirement or the pension of her deceased husband and it's the last couple dollars she has and you're willing to take that, that's pretty low. And yet that's exactly what these people do. They don't care. Uh, Hebrews 13.5 says this, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. If we could learn that lesson in and of itself, the, the, the lesson of contentment, right? Um, just that lesson alone, it, it touches every aspect of our life. It touches our career. It touches our marriage. It, it touches uh, our wealth. Uh, it should touch our, our, our spiritual condition. Be content. It, it, could, it should touch our, our own social living, whether we're married, whether we're single. Be content with what God has given you. Um, and then it closes that verse. It says, because he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I mean, what's wrong? What's wrong with your life? You have a, uh, you've trusted in Christ. He clearly says, I'm never going to leave you nor forsake you. I'm going to provide for your needs. It may not be for your wants all the time, but I'll provide for your needs. Isn't that enough? Guard yourself against going down that, that road because the scriptures also warn us in several places about, you know, quick 
get-rich schemes, uh, and a lot of times it mentions the mere fact that, you know what, when you gain money um, that you haven't worked for, usually that doesn't bode well for you because you have no respect for that wealth, and a lot of times you end up just gambling it away. Um, there was a, one guy, he, 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 he said this. He said, my grand, grandmother was a staunch Southern Baptist, and she used to march me off to Sunday school and church every Sunday, just like clockwork. Even when I didn't want to go, I had to go. Um, so when I switched to the Episcopal Church, <laughs> after being married, she challenged me. And she asked me, hey, what's wrong with the Baptist Church? You grew up in the Baptist Church. And the, her grandson said this, well, Carol and I flipped a coin to see if we would go to her church or mine. And I lost. <laughs> so I have to go to her church. And it's, it's the Episcopal Church. And her grandmother, his grandmother responded this way, serves you right. Good Baptists don't gamble. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's just kind of a funny story. But you know what? You've got to be careful sometimes. Uh, Mark Twain said this, there are two times in a man's life when he should not speculate. When he can't afford it. And when he can that's that's a good saying so samson apparently here was willing to gamble and we saw his greed and we see the gamble here he never thought he would lose the bet obviously Uh, he had it kind of weighted in his favor you would think he just knew that that these men would be bringing him these 30 fine sheets and new suits and clothes and he just thought this is the way it's going to going to work he did not count he didn't bring into account the fact that they might not play by his rules you know it always amazes me when when sometimes they you know when i used to go down the coffee shop a lot i talked to one guy they're always going to these these um, indian gambling casinos and uh, when i used to work for the da's office down in indio Riverside County, there's a couple Indian gaming, gaming casinos down there. And uh, I remember the detectives always telling me, if you're going to gamble, don't do it at an Indian gaming casino. It's the worst possible place to gamble. I mean, at least someplace like Vegas, they're regulated. And these places, a lot of times, they have no regulations. So you're more than likely, you're not going to win anything. But boy, people, you know, they just come to these places, flock to these places, and they think somehow... They're going to they're gonna mess with the system. They're going to win. And yeah, they, they throw out some winners there now and then so that it can entice others to feed the coins in the slot machines. Or Now they're all digital, apparently, but whatever. But you know what? The idea is, is just so far-fetched. Um, you know, they're not going to play by your rules. It's not going to be a fair bet. And so he didn't count on that. Uh, and when they had been unable to solve this riddle after three days. They were probably getting a little nervous. What'd they do? They went to their friend, who was, who was their friend, Samson's bride. Right? And what'd they do? They forced her to find out the answer to the riddle. She didn't know the answer. But they said, hey, you know what? If you don't help us out here, we're your people. He's not your people which goes back and begs the question, why couldn't Samson see this when his parents pointed this out to him before? You know, what are you doing going over there and marrying this Gentile woman? You don't have any business doing that. We're not to mix 
get ourselves mixed up with that. God forbids that, but he didn't care. And so when they had been unable to do that, they threatened to burn her and her whole family uh, to death if she doesn't help them. That would probably motivate anyone, right? I mean, we're going we're gonna to burn your house down with you in it if you don't give us this answer. They even tried to accuse her of inviting them there so that she could let Samson rob them blind. In other words, they kind of put her with Samson. Oh, you're, you're part of his clan now. You, you've lost your loyalty to us, so therefore, why should we trust you? You probably set this whole thing up just so Samson could take advantage of us. We see what you're doing. And so out of fear, what does the bride do? She does her best to get the answer out of Samson. I mean, she's fighting for her life here. Uh, she accuses him, first of all, verse 16, of not loving her because he hasn't told her the solution to his riddle. And when that doesn't work, it says she cries, she begs, she pleads, she pouts for the duration of the feast. I mean, remember, this is a wedding. This is supposed to be a joyous occasion, right? And boy, you know, this, this, this bride to be here is not working with the system. She's making his life miserable. And the marriage isn't even completed yet. Well, obviously, this gets on Samson's nerves. And guys, you probably understand this more than the women here, but it says there, she pressed him hard. In other words, she put him in the straight. She, she tried to oppress him. She, she just said, you know what? I'm going to wear you out with my words and my whining, and I'm going to wear you down until you'd rather die than not tell me this riddle. And guys, women are good at that. I mean, they'll admit it, hopefully, if they're honest. Um, and not to mention the fact that here she is ruining the party. I mean, you know, it's supposed to be a joyous day for her. She's among her people. and Samson's there by himself. And all of a sudden, she's whining. She's crying. She's just constantly, uh, you know, there's only so much a man can take. Even if he is the strongest man in the world, which he was. I mean, you know, the book of Proverbs points this out. This is not, I'm not making fun of this, but the book of Proverbs speaks very plainly about this. Proverbs 27.15 says, A continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. It's like you're laying in bed and you hear that spout drip, 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 and you're trying to sleep and you can't. Proverbs 21.19 says, It is better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. Those of you who are single here, be reading, be thinking about these things. <laughs> I'm just warning you. Proverbs 25, 24. Make your decision wisely, my friends. Uh, Proverbs 25, 24 says, It is better to live in the corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. And remember, the Bible clearly says that from the very beginning, God has created marriage this way, right? Um, the woman is kind of being set against the desires of the man. Uh, you know, God has given the leadership in the household to, to the male, to the man, from the very beginning. And what did he tell the ladies? You're going to want to take over his position. <laughs> and so there is that constant battle going on in any marriage. I don't care who you're married to. Sooner or later, you're going to sense it. And that, that's why marriage is given to us, not to make us happy, right? But to make us holy, to make us more like Christ, because there's sacrifice, there's give and take. Um, Solomon, 
would have known this if anybody did, right? He had tons of women in his wife. And so Samson here tells her, finally, the solution. He tells her the answer. And what does she do? She runs right over to the enemies, his enemies. And uh, they come to him at the last moment. Oh, by the way, we got the answer to your little riddle, Samson. And he immediately knows how they found out because he didn't tell anybody else. No one, his parents, nobody knew. No one was there. Uh, Only his wife. And I love his response in verse 18. In verse 18, he says, uh, And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day, before the sun went down, the riddle, What is sweeter than honey, and what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Um, Now, he's not insulting his wife. Okay, guys, don't go home and call your wife a heifer. That's not going to go over well, okay, in our day and age. But back then, it meant someone who is unpredictable, someone who is stubborn, okay? And had Samson been more discerning, he could have avoided this problem altogether, but he didn't have any discernment at all at this point because he was so given into his sin. And sin clouds our judgment on every every, uh, horizon. So uh, he should have been not involved with a Philistine woman from the very beginning. He should not have been playing games with these men who were considered his enemy. But what did he do? He refused to keep his distance, and he paid a high price. Um, And Samson, unfortunately, is like a lot of people in our world today. Um, They think they are so smart and so discerning when it comes to many things in their life, yet they seem so dumb when it comes to their own sin. And that's exactly what we see here. And the perils they face are obvious. But they seem oblivious to them. They don't understand. And so it's a form of willful ignorance, you might say. Um, They put their fingers in their ear and say, I don't want to hear the truth. I want to suppress the truth. I'm just going to go on with my life. And it will be better. uh, Their ultimate destruction, really, is what the Bible says. So we see the wager, the wedding, and then we see his wrath the outburst of his wrath in verses 19 to 20, because Samson had this debt to pay. Um, He lost the bet. Even though they cheated, he lost. Um, He doesn't go out and and buy 30 changes of clothing. He doesn't go have them made. What does he do? The Bible says that he goes out and he kills 30 Philistines in Ascalon, some 20 miles away. And he takes their garments to the men who won the bet in Timnath. Uh, it was cruel. It was revengeful. It was vindictive. But you know what it is? It's further indication of where Samson's heart is. I mean, he, he lost the bet, but he couldn't live with that. So what did he do? He got, he got enraged. And his enragement left, you know, 30 men murdered uh, and their, their goods taken a lot of times your reactions to the negative actions of the people around you uh, are really a window into your own heart. What are are your reactions to the negative actions of people around you? They're they're a window into your own heart. Um, The Bible says when you are like Jesus, what happens? You will react like Jesus. Matthew 5 um, you know, when there are problems in your heart, 
you will react according to your fallen nature. Sometimes you will be bitter, unforgiving, vengeful, hateful, mean-spirited. Our reactions are always a window into our own souls. And none of us are perfect in this area. We've all lost our cool, but hopefully we haven't gone out and killed 30 people. Um, so what's the outcome of his wrath here? He's so angry that he does not stay to consummate his own wedding. He's probably like, just get me out of here. I'm done. I don't, I'm tired of this lady talking and whining and crying. You know, I lost the bet. So where does he go? He returns to his father's house and calls off basically the wedding. And uh, what we have here is kind of like almost a, a, you call it a runaway groom. <laughs> and uh, when the girl's father sees that Samson has abandoned his daughter, what does he do? He gives her to one of the 30 men probably the one who was acting as his best man so that she wouldn't be shamed in this whole event. Uh, so this event shows that neither Samson nor his prospective father-in-law nor the best man held any kind of marriage vow in high esteem. It didn't matter. They didn't care about that. And today in our society, we see the same thing. Very many people do not hold marriage as a sacred thing we see it trampled on all the time that was the big fight right several years ago over the description of marriage what is marriage marriage is between a man and a woman that's just what it's always been you know and unfortunately those in the homosexual society had an issue with that because they too wanted to be married together and that didn't fit the definition so what did they have to do they had to change the definition and ultimately the court said sure they can do that Um, the outcome of anger and wrath is always it's always tragic it's just another indication that we're dealing with our own corrupt hearts Um, that's why in ephesians chapter 4 verse 26 paul says be angry and sin not. <laughs> I mean, we're going to be angry, but don't let sin captivate you in your anger. Let not the sin go down on your wrath. Don't carry that grudge beyond the sunset. Proverbs 14.29 says, He that is slow to wrath is of great understanding, but he that is hasty of spirit exalteth folly. Or Proverbs 19.11, The discretion of a man defers his anger and in his glory to pass over a transgression anger is dangerous trust me i know it destroys friendships it can ruin relationships Um, one man says anger like fire finally dies out but only after leaving a path of destruction you know you look at some of the pictures of these people who've lost their homes their towns with some of these fires around here uh, the the destruction that goes on. Uh, anger is similar to that. It reveals a lot of times who is wrong in a, in a matter, in a disagreement. Um, an old uneducated cobbler used to attend the public debates held at a famous English university, so the story goes. And all the debates were held in Latin. And a friend asked him if he understood Latin. 
And the old cobbler said, no. <laughs> but I know who is wrong in every argument. And his friend replied, how? How could you possibly know that if you don't even understand the language you're speaking? And he says, why? By seeing who is angry first. <laughs> and that's true. There's a lot of truth in that. Well, verse 19, we see here the ordering of his wrath. is one of those verses that causes you to think, you know, we know that what Samson did was wrong. There's no doubt about that. It was wrong for him to marry a Philistine girl. But we know God was in it, verse 4. God used this in his purpose, in his plan. It was wrong for him to go out and commit murder, but we're told that he did it, verse 19. Look at what it says, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Wow. See, this is just a reminder of how our sin will not derail God's plan. It won't derail God's ultimate plan. His purposes will be fulfilled. And verse 4 tells us that God sought an occasion against the Philistines. And Samson was an unclean vessel, yet the Lord used him in spite and sometimes in the midst of his own sins. God even used Samson's sins to accomplish his own will. Not that he was the author of his sins. He didn't make Samson do what he did. But God knows that what Samson was going to do. And God used the anger of Samson for the good of God's people. And God was determined to stir up strife between Israel and the Philistines. And he used Sam, Samson's anger to accomplish that. Um, it's hard to explain all this. But I think you'd be suffice to say and understand that our God is sovereign over all things. Amen? Even the sins of humanity. He's sovereign over that. Uh, regardless of why or how this all happened... Let it be said that Samson should have been attacking the Philistines for the glory of God and not for revenge. And he's not going to receive any reward, I don't believe, for his actions here because they were sinful on every front. So how does this speak to our own heart? Just a couple of closing words here. I think we have to take care that we don't allow ourselves to flirt with sin or flirt with evil. And we live in a very flirtatious society when it comes to wrongdoing. We have to be careful we don't fall into that same habit. Uh, we also have to take care that we don't harbor anger. We don't harbor animosity or unforgiveness or ill will toward others. We have to be careful of that. We have to be willing to confess that and talk to those people and get it behind us. Uh, we also must be aware that we don't seek wealth that we have not earned. Uh, there's no free lunch. And lastly, we must be sure that we maintain tender hearts and keep short accounts with our God. And I think if we, if we apply those principles to our lives, uh, we'll be able to stay a little more true to God's standard of righteousness and His path that He desires us to be on. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, let's pray and then we'll have a little fellowship. Father, we thank You for Your Word tonight. Thank You for uh, Samson. We thank You for his life, even though it was filled with a lot of uh, sinful things. Lord, you even use that for your glory. And Father, we, we thank you for that truth because we don't have to be perfect in our own standing um, practically each and every day. We can't be perfect. We live in a sinful world. We're, we're left here uh, with a, a sinful body. Uh, Lord, we're going to be tempted and give in to sin. But Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that convicts us when we do, that drives us to our knees in repentance and, and asks you and confirms your forgiveness for our sins. 
and allows us to say the same thing, have the same attitude towards sin. Lord, creating us a deep hatred for sin, of all sin, not just murder and, and other things that are very obvious, but the small things. Because we know, Lord, that the small things can lead to more harmful things in our lives. And so, Lord, create that tenderness in our hearts, a sensitivity, and help us to be people who desire to be pure, to be holy before you. And Lord, when we're not, to come to you in conviction, thanking you for your forgiveness and confessing that sin to you. Lord, if there's any here tonight who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, Lord, that you would do that work of salvation in their heart, that you would show them that, Lord, we have a God who has provided for us completely for our salvation from our own sin, from the burden that we carry. And Lord, we we thank you for Jesus Christ who willingly came to this earth, lived a perfect life 30-some years and went to a a cruel death on a cross willingly. And Lord, on that cross, God put upon him all the sins of all those who would ever put their faith or trust in him for the sacrifice for their sins. And yet, he died willingly on the third day. Your word says that he rose again. And that was your stamp of affirmation upon his sacrifice that he met the standard that no one else could meet. And Lord, you now invite us to participate with him in his death and resurrection. And you ask us to trust him for our salvation and confess our sins to him and ask him to come into our lives and make us the people that he desires us to be. That we would allow him to be our Lord and Savior. And Father, we pray that if there's any here tonight that the cry of their heart would be, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. That's a prayer that when it's prayed from a sincere heart, you will, you will answer. And Lord, for us believers, I pray that as we go out into this lost and dying world, that we would understand that um, there's evil around us and on every front. And so, Lord, give us strength. Give us that spiritual stability, that sure rock to stand upon as we study and, and commit your word to our hearts and our minds. Lord, that you would strengthen us for the battle ahead. It doesn't look like things are going to be getting better, Father, anytime soon. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us the endurance we need. And uh, we, we trust you because you hold us, Father, in the palm of your hand. You hold us secure. And, Lord, we just thank you for that. And, and we pray that you would bless our time now, just a, a conversation and fellowship. And we pray for Carol as she goes through her procedure tomorrow morning. Uh, tomorrow, Lord, that you would just bless her and bless the doctors, Lord, that you would give them wisdom as they do this other eye for uh, uh, cataract surgery and pray that it would be successful and that she would be able to um, see more clearly now that both of her eyes are done and thank you uh, for your constant care over us and we also pray for those who may be traveling we think of christy and jenna who are traveling out of town and others lord uh, think of uh, carolyn who's back east with her family and she'll be coming back at the end of the month and just pray for these folks as they're driving and traveling that you'll keep them safe and bring them safely back to us and lord we just uh I praise you for your goodness and your care for us. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, amen. Amen.